back with another episode of Talking as a Free Action. I'm your host, Owen, joined again today with our illustrious co-host. Heyo! Welcome back to the show, Marvin. And we are actually joined by a very special guest. Uh, everyone, please welcome Gigi to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for letting me be here. And the doggo, too. <laughs> yes, there will be guest appearances by the doggo probably throughout. I apologize in advance. That's okay. I really appreciate the on-cue barking as though to punctuate the sentence. Paid actor, truly. (laughs) (laughs) If our editing was any better, then they wouldn't know if we were just throwing in extra barks just to see if we could trick people. (laughs) Our editing might be that good. Hold on. Am I doing this one? No, hold on. I don't think I'm doing it. You could. (laughs) If you want to. Ooh, I could. All right, we're adding in extra barks randomly throughout the night. Uh, you gotta count how many are real and there might be a giveaway probably not (laughs) no i mean actually now that you think about it it's actually not that hard right we just cut out the little bark in the beginning and then we just slot it in randomly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so all right well moving past that fun little game uh if, if you're on uh twitter uh just feel free to add us with how many extra barks you think there are in this episode we'll let you know if you're right See, like the, the real top tier plays to put zero extra marks. <laughs> I think that's what uh what the professionals will do because they know we're lazy. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, um anyways, that that non sequitur aside, um yeah, so Gigi, welcome to the show. Uh, honestly, I'm a little bit shocked that I didn't think to ask you on sooner. I think the timing just worked out perfectly. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think it did. Uh, well, we say that, but also, like, last time we tried to set a date for this, you were unfortunately unavailable. <laughs> so This is true. Life will get in the way, but I think life has calmed down more recently. So there's a chance if you asked me earlier, I may not have been around. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, and uh, hopefully you will not grow to regret your choice to agree to this. Uh, I guess we'll find out by the end of the evening. I mean, I would hope the same for you both. There's a chance you invite me again, and there's a chance that you regret every minute of me speaking. And there's only one way to find out. That's true. So uh, first things first, then. Uh, How long have you been playing uh, tabletop role-playing games? Ooh, uh, so if I wanted to, like, brag and pull the biggest number I possibly could, like, on and off for 15 years. No. More realistically, like, six, maybe seven years. Um, I started 15 years ago, did a couple of campaigns that did not fare well and did not leave a great taste in my mouth. So I kind of stepped aside for quite some time. Um, And then more recently, about six or seven years ago, kind of picked it back up, um, just started hearing about it again. And I was like, you know what, we could try again. We could see what it was about. Um, Because the role playing, that's the part that always called to me. I'm a theater kid at heart. It was the math. The math was really rough of like, what do you, which dice? What, what do you mean? What numbers? Uh, I am trying to have a good time. So uh, when I got into it more recently, uh, the addition of having Roll20 or being able to use uh, Foundry Tabletop, that's kind of what helped me get back into it. And now I know my dice. Um, now I'm good. Um, but there's that sense of, I actually had a love-hate relationship with it for a very long time. Uh, largely due to the number of dice. And now I have become a dice hoarder myself. Mm-mm. Yes, a fellow dice goblin. Welcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. A journey, but I'm finally here. 
<laughs> I mean, who doesn't love having a pile of shinies, right? Truly. I think some of it was also my um, own fault early on of uh, perhaps role-playing too far. Um, like I can think to a particular campaign uh, where I had an agreement with the DM that at any point I could intimidate players and that was part of my character. I could not hurt them and I would not hurt them, um, but I would not be nice. Um, and that was a known trait and there was a reason for that that would tie in later. Um, the very, I think it was the second session I was mean to a player, uh, and they cried at the table and I oh, felt no. really bad and I didn't know what to do and we never played again. <laughs> That's incredibly horrible. Oh my gosh. And like, I, to be fair, I was not, I did not think being that mean, they asked for healing and I was, I was like, what's in it for me? And they were like, well, I don't have any gold. And I said, you can always owe me a favor. And they were like no, I, no, I can't. What would you make me do? And I'm like, I don't know. It's a favor. <laughs> and this went back and forth for like two or three minutes until the player stopped for a couple of seconds and then started crying. And I was like, no, it's not that serious. Here, you can, you use the potion. You're good. <laughs> oh my gosh. It wasn't that serious. <laughs> You're a monster. Oh, I didn't mean it. So yeah, I stepped away for a long time because between that and the math that did not make sense to me at the time, uh, I was just like, maybe this game's not for me and make people cry. <laughs> I mean, that's not just, I mean, the crying thing I can't do anything about, but like the numbers, at least I understand because like that was 3.5 if we're, if I, my time is about right. Cause that mm -hmm. started probably about when we did. Yep. And like 3.5 was not very kind to people who are not very number savvy. <laughs> Not this at all. is true. I don't think any of the players really knew what was going on, so that did not help in terms of being questions. But we were all trying to have a good time. I think 5e is definitely easier for that. Until you bullied one player off the table. Yeah, makes sense. Again, I, <laughs> I have made much graver threats in my, <laughs> in my D D playing that did not lead to such breakdowns. Um, but I, I always feel bad for that player because I don't know if they ever went back to D&D either. Um, Oof. I know. <laughs> but like, real talk, that's the most GG thing I've ever heard. You accidentally bullied someone into never playing D&D again. I... If you did it on purpose, it would be so the opposite of you. But to do it by mistake... <laughs> health potion and ask for a favor i thought i was being very clever rogue i was like hell yeah this is this is it this is why we spec into charisma oh no <laughs> oh oh man that uh that, that nine wisdom really coming back right <laughs> mm -hmm. yep i misread the situation <laughs> um so um so yeah that's a pretty traumatic early experience i would say with the game i understand why you may have stepped away for a little while mm -hmm. yeah um i think it was interesting because it was the broader community in the sense of like that's not normal um that i got that got me back into it um because at one point i started as everyone does uh i learned of who matt mercer was Mm -hmm. uh, I started watching Dimension 20 I went on Reddit 
yeah. uh, started realizing that that was not uh, how things were meant to be. I was going to say, um, I, I like and... two, of, two out of the three steps there. Everything up until you got to Reddit was great. Yeah, look, Reddit's not all bad. But it's, it's not pretty very bad. good either. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and defend it, but there's there are some subreddits I stand by. Um, it's mostly my crafting ones and my DM ones and like fantasy art ones. Um, anyway, Reddit aside, um, the more I got into almost the DMing side of things, the group dynamics at the table, the writing of the plot, the, you know, piecing things together, um, that's what called me back. And so I was like, okay, I really want to try DMing, um, but I have no idea what's going on. And I would like to be a somewhat competent uh, kind of resource for my players. Um, and so I started playing to learn the game enough that I could DM. So it's interesting that what got me back into it was not necessarily playing it, um, but being able to tell that story and have that good time and be the person creating that space to some extent that's really interesting because I, I find that like a lot of new players are well new air quotes um people who are like returning to a system are usually not super keen to jump into the driver's chair but it sounds like you kind of started like getting into like the fifth edition almost with the express purpose of getting into that chair very much so i think it may be uh partly due to the fact that i am a control freak and partly due to the fact that there's a sense of I really, really wanted to play, and it was easier to find players than a DM. Oh boy, um, that isn't just so <laughs> right. All of that culminated together of like, okay, so I want to be in charge, and no one else wants to be in charge. This makes it real easy. <laughs> I see. So when you did finally get into the DM's chair, did you find that like your experience of having watched Dimension 20 and watched Critical Role influenced the way that you ran the game? Yes, though perhaps not how they should have. I don't like that sentence. <laughs> I actually do. I'm really interested in what you mean by that. Um, I think, so I, I've heard the notion of like, People go, you know, players will go into a game with like Matt Mercer goggles. And if their DM isn't doing many accents, if there aren't many assets, they'll get upset. This was kind of the flip side of that, where I almost expected too much of my players. Um, and there was that sense of like, I'm really excited. I've got my stuff together now. I've spent time understanding this and being able to do this and getting that feeling of like, for everyone else, this is a very chill Saturday, which it is for me too, with hours and hours of work behind it. Um, so I think that was my initial hurdle of like trying to combat that sense of uh, we're all here to have a good time, but also not having players meet my expectations. I think there was a little bit of like, oh, come on, you can role play through it. You got this. And they're just like, well, the dice said no, so now I'm just going to give up and wait, see mm -hmm. what else happens. We're not all blessed to have people like, you know, Liam O'Brien or Abri Iyengar to, like, sit at the table, right, and yeah. and role-play through these elaborate scenarios. Um, and that can definitely take some 
getting used to, particularly if you have players who are not, you know, either A, not comfortable doing that style of, of game, or B, they're just not interested in doing that style of game. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. And so that was kind of where I started looking more into, like, group dynamics of, like, what is the type of campaign that we're playing and what are the players looking for? Um, like, now I do questionnaires of, you know, how much of these things do you want to see? How much combat? How much role-playing? How many secrets? How much of it do you want to kind of unfold in front of you? And how much do you want to really go search and figure it out? Um, and there's a sense of, even if that doesn't fundamentally change the entire campaign that I have uh, available, um, as I go, I can kind of be like, okay, it's been a couple of days since we did this, and I know two people are mainly here for that. Um, so kind of jumping back and forth. And that's something I've done twice now. Um, it's helpful, but it also gets overwhelming because I kind of, I get stuck in the data analysis all of like, have I perfected the sessions, which can't happen. Yeah, that's um, kind of a, it, I, I remember like when I was still a pretty young DM, um, I had spent like multiple nights, um, like, literally doing an all-nighter the day before the session right getting like an hour and a half of sleep or something because like i just had to like finish that table or just had to finish that monster encounter or whatever it was right and mm -hmm. like it, it was never worth it i mean number one i had a super toxic player who always made me feel like shit for not doing more but i mean even aside from that it was never worth it you know yep no i hear you so pre-pandemic i would have in-person games a lot um and i would make set pieces like i'm very much the crafter um so i'd make set pieces i'd get very excited and then we'd have cancellations like things come up availability happens it's not i'm not calling anybody out here um but there is that sense of like this is a little bit more than a board game like i've put a little bit more to more into it um but not necessarily having that sense uh that the players are bought in as much and kind of going back to more questionnaires and more just conversations where we come together as a group, but we do not play D&D &D that night. We play a board game. We just have dinner. We talk on Zoom, whatever it may be. Um, I think that's also helped where folks can kind of resolve their issues amongst themselves in between those sessions. Um, and it's not always, you know, DM, go figure out all of these things and then bring us together. Did it like hurt your feelings at the time? Oh yeah, I get I get butthurt a lot. Um, <laughs> it very much so did, um, but there was a sense of because I had started with a lot of the um, I can't remember what they're called, but it's like the side like vignette videos with like Marisha Ray talking about how you know what she likes about playing in this kind of campaign versus that one. Um, because I started in that realm of things before I started playing again, um, there was always a sense of like, don't take it too personally. Like you can get upset if you want to, but no one means it that way. It is a game of make believe. It will be okay. You're allowed to get your feelings hurt, but you got to move on because like the longer you sit in it, the less it became, it be, is just a game of make believe. Um, and I think that's kind of core to how I see D and D like it is a, an opportunity to have friends, uh, to have fun with those friends, to make new friends, 
to play out scenarios that otherwise just live in your head. Um, but it is not there to sit and stew in your free time. And part of that is a personal choice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important lesson that I think a lot of people could really stand to hear right? at the end of the day is like, hey, this isn't like a big deal. I mean, not to say that it's not important, right? Obviously, if you spend time putting together a, uh, you know, a campaign, building a map, like quite literally, like with your own two hands, like mm-hmm. I understand why, like, hey, like, you know, there's this feeling of like, maybe I care more about this than you do. And like, definitionally, you almost kind of have to as the dungeon master in some respects. But I think that's a really important lesson um, that I think some people, because I, I, I've sat at those tables where, you know, some of the players feel like they're, you know, the other people are not taking it seriously and it can be very frustrating for them, right? Um, and obviously if they're dungeon mastering and, you know, they're experiencing that same emotion, they need to understand that just like, just because you're super excited about it and someone else doesn't look like they're demonstrating the same amount of excitement doesn't mean that they're not also excited but they might just engage with the game in a different way or they just might have other stuff going on and that can be okay too Mm -hmm. there's a sense of like somewhere in those last six years for more personal reasons i've learned that lesson of like just let it go it's fine no one like rarely do people mean it and if they mean it you'll know you won't be sitting there questioning um and so there's that sense of at the end of the day, if you've come together and there was never that expectation set of, okay, everybody brings something to the table, um, then you can't get upset that ex- that expectation was not met, right? Um, that's the other thing that, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on um, the concept of rotating DM or rotating that facilitatorship um, of the group to kind of pass around um the responsibilities some of the logistical things um how do you guys feel about that because i've never um seen it work out in the long run but it's something that i've always heard is the potential solution to one person taking all the weight so um uh, you can go first marvin i think that for it to work there has to be a lot of flexibility with the way the story is being told that most dms are not prepared for when they begin a campaign um it probably can work but usually when you start a campaign it's because there is a story that you want your players to you know tell in conjunction with you and there is an end point you want them to get to and hope they get there And it doesn't always work out that way if other people are also telling that story in their own way. Yeah, so I have two major experiences with this kind of thing. Uh, One quite some time ago, and one a lot more recently. So during my first campaign, um, the one where I was spending lots of overnighters, um, understandably I burned out fairly quickly on that. Um, I think I ran it for maybe like... I don't know, I want to say maybe like six months or something before I, I just, I had enough. I couldn't do it anymore. And like, I wasn't having fun DMing it anymore. So I passed it off to uh, one of the other players. And so that was essentially me saying, here's the world that we have. Here's the story I want to tell. 
here are the notes that I have left over. Here you go. Take it over. I'm going to run as a player. And they ran it, but I wasn't really happy with how they ran it or the conclusion that they ended up rewriting into the story. In fact, it was it left a really bad taste in my mouth and honestly it's it precipitated eventually in us ending that friendship um although there was a lot of other conflating factors but um that was like one of the first like big like eh, this isn't a good person to have in my life kind of moments Mm -hmm. but um more recently i actually have had a lot of success with something similar um instead of co-running the same campaign though we actually just run different campaigns on off weeks and that's done a lot of good for me and i think for him as well um, one, because it gives him an opportunity to kind of stretch his creative muscles and kind of run his own story. And for me, it gives me an opportunity to actually play as a player and takes a little bit of the um, the stress off of having to come up with a new session every single week, um, which can be a little bit exhausting. And so, um, so Dustin runs a campaign with a more or less different set of players, except for myself, um, on, you know, one Saturday during the month and then well every other week or whatever and then on the off weeks um, that's when I run the campaign that you're a member of right now Gigi interesting I like that idea you just got a book every week with a D&D session yeah and the, the only downside to that I would say is that when we skip a week like mm-hmm. it, it really sucks because <laughs> um, it means that like because it's a different group of players in this instance like the only the only through line is me and Dustin in this case, mm-hmm. um, if one of us, like if one of those sessions gets canceled, the people who are not in the off session don't get to play for three, uh, three weeks, basically. And that's really unfortunate. Um, so um, I would say that if one were to do that, um, that maybe they could just arrange where it's two different campaigns running in parallel with the same group of players. And mm-hmm. I think that that could work really well for a group of um, people who've played the game for a little while, maybe not new players necessarily, because it can be a little bit hard to jump back and forth between two different PCs, right, and stay in character um, all the time. Although not impossible, it depends on the person really, but I think that like that adds an additional layer of complication to what can already be kind of a stressful first experience at times. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. by the other coin, it does give them an opportunity to try different classes in a way that they wouldn't be able to normally, so. Great, I like that. I also... I think it'd be kind of interesting if you did have players. That might be an interesting way to introduce one-shots, even potentially of other game systems, um, where you have that opportunity to kind of like hand off, take a break, or if someone does want to run a couple of sessions, they have that chance to take on a couple without committing to running a whole campaign for everybody. Mm. Oh, yeah. I might play with that for one of my parties. (laughs) No, I mean, it's a really good avenue to, like, give yourself the freedom to try different things. Because one thing that I do see over and over again is um, sometimes I feel like people just are are really hesitant to get away from 5th edition. And there are a lot of really good game systems out there that they could be playing to help tell the story that they want to tell. Can't tell you how many times you see someone online, it's like, hey, I'm trying to change this, this, and this about 5th edition or to turn it into this sci-fi game. And it's like, you could just play a sci-fi tabletop. Like, there's a lot of them, right? But instead, they're going to worry about how to, like, you know, transfer the armor rules to account for, like, you know, antimatter guns or something. It's funny story. There's a group of friends at one point that 
everyone wanted to play as a druid and just run the campaign as bears. Um, and there's a game system to be bears. Wait, isn't that just Honey Heist? <laughs> uh, it is. And there are re like reimaginings of add like basically additional adventures in. Um, so you can do quite a few things as a bear. Um, and all you need are some D6. So we ended up doing um, Honey Heist and like two of the add-ons. One was um, a combination of that and this other one that's got like corrupted goats and you got to save the goats. I don't remember the title of it. Um, and then the other one was uh, you got to go fight some werewolves. So it was fun. Um, but th there was a long conversation of like, we could be druids and we could do all of that or hear me out. We just pretend we're druids and we play the game as bears. Yeah, it's like... I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, you're right. Sometimes just make it easy for yourself. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's like, could I reskin 5th edition to be a Star Wars game? Yeah. Could I just play Star Wars Saga Edition instead? Also, yeah. <laughs> or one of the supported rule books. Exactly. Right. Like, hey, I want to play a mech, uh, mech anime, or, you know, inspired campaigns. Like, go play Lancer. I don't know. You want to play Pokemon? There's a tabletop for that too. You want to play an Avatar inspired game? They have a they have a tabletop for it now. Go do that. A last Airbender one and a Blue People. There's variety yeah. out there. Both Avatar games exist. Mm-hmm. I was happier when I knew that only the the good one existed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to take away your peace of mind. There you go. Okay, both avatars are good, just one of them is better. Significantly. And also costs like a tenth of the budget. I think that is a very small fraction. I'm trying to think of a statement where I agree with avatars. I'm having a really hard time. Look, I'm just saying that James Cameron spent... They both took like... work. James Cameron spent something like $2 billion on making the, the second movie and he, or like over a billion dollars or whatever on that movie. And that movie needed to like make $2 billion in opening weekend for them to turn a profit. And it did not do that thing. This it is needed a to make $2 tangent. billion over its entire life cycle in theaters. And it did it. It got there eventually. One day. It wasn't promising for the first for the opening weekend, but it got there. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a whole um it's like a section of Universal or something that is from the planet. Like it's supposed to be as if you're walking amongst the avatar. Oh, like in There's now a theme park. Yes, that's what it is, Pandora. Could not remember the name of the planet. That's that Disney World. Yes. Is that where it is? I thought it was... Uh, it's an animal kingdom. I went there mm. for the first time six months ago. How was it? It was nice. Um, the Avatar ride, the... I forget what it's called. But you're, like, riding one of the bird dinosaur things. It's really fun. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, as long as you're having fun, I guess, is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I have not been. I've only heard that it exists. 
So I wanted to make sure Owen knew about it. I mean, I know about it now. I'm interested <laughs> in going to check it out now. Um, it is probably the only thing that makes Animal Kingdom worth it now. Oh, no. I don't like Animal Kingdom. Except for that section, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something. And I'm not even a huge fan of Avatar. That ride was just real good. I'm just going to say, if it's worth the cost of the whole ticket to Animal Kingdom, you got me. Uh, make sure you definitely don't just get a ticket for Animal Kingdom. Get one of the park hopper passes so you can go somewhere better in the afternoon. <laughs> no remorse. No. None. That's what happens when you live in Florida. You just have no, like, attachment emotionally to any of these parks. There's just too many of them and they're too replaceable. That's very true. I think Animal Kingdom's the only one I've been to. I've been to Islands of Adventure more times than I could count. Like, nothing there excites me anymore. Same. (laughs) I can't even go there anymore. It just makes me sad that I'm not having fun. I think there was a year that I had, like, um, season passes or whatever and went way too much. There was a year where I should have had a season pass because I did go way too much. (laughs) There was a year that our university had a program where you could pay significantly reduced prices for like a year year pass. And then you could also add in like Halloween Horror Nights and other things and they'd like take a bus down. People were there like every week. It was... I almost never want to go to any of the Universal or like any of the Orlando parks again. I think I've been to them too much, but Islands of Adventure in particular. But like, sorry, this became the jaded Florida sideshow. I apologize. I went on like one tangent after. This is what we do. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever actually listened to this show, but we talk about D&D for maybe 20 minutes out of the hour. I have, but I, what I do for work (laughs) is stay on topic. I can't help myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, That's why I go off on tangents. I mean, Jaded Florida Sideshow might as well be the subtitle of this episode. The end of this, the entire podcast. I completely agree. I like that. It's a perfect Definitely title. the subtitle of the podcast. Maybe we should make that the title of this episode. I'm glad we're talking about it so that when we edit it, we have the title. <laughs> like... Honestly, like, I mean, obviously you don't know this, Gigi, but like, literally like hours before the episode's supposed to go live it's just usually marvin or i dming one another like what do you think of these quotes because the episode titles are always a quote from the episode i love that i love that i've made your jobs easy yeah it's pretty good i'll try to give you more options as we continue i'll continue no, with make my this a difficult choice it's already hard <laughs> I mean, it's too meta now. Like Anybody who's listening to the show, they know what the episode title is at this point. So, you know, they know, like, if this was good enough. No, that's yeah. fair. Oh, wait, uh, maybe we should pick something else then, because otherwise they'll think that the episode's peaked and they'll just turn it off. We're only halfway nah. through. <laughs> we'll see. We can always edit in post. Oh, yeah, yeah. I we guess we can just do. add this section to the end of the podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> Does that mean that we have to record the outro now and then continue the conversation? No, we're not doing this. I would rather not. (laughs) 
it's like we're already adding in extra barks like now we're gonna have to recut the entire <laughs> ship just to facilitate a meme <laughs> but like half an episode in and i've just made it pure chaos i love that just turn our podcast into the equivalent of a doctor who episode with bad writing so no, at least who give episode. me good writing but there's only like three of them yeah but you know we're not one of them Oh. Anyway, we're going to continue a linear telling of this story. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned before um, mm-hmm. that, you know, when you were kind of getting to, to DMing, right, and you had different players who kind of had different, like, play values, right, I guess what mm-hmm. we're going to call it. Um, obviously, you mentioned that that was a little bit difficult to, to handle. So how did you eventually kind of come to accept or or move past that right where you're like expecting you know liam o'brien like melodrama or whatever and you're getting you know not that you know how'd you move past that so i think there were two pieces i think one was the more i played in campaigns the more i realized how unrealistic that expectation was of like I don't, I can't do that when I'm a player. I, again, earlier, self-proclaimed theater kid, I get tired. There are sessions I don't feel like doing anything. Um, and that's not to, you know, say that I'm not having a good time. That's not to say that I don't want to. That's just that day I want to listen, I want to absorb. And that now no longer feels like an expectation missed, but kind of what you were saying earlier of just a different way to interact with that game. Um, with the same game. So I think one of the, one of the things that helped me with that was just playing more and realizing that that was a little unrealistic. Um, and then I think kind of the other piece was just taking that step back and saying, you know, did I really ask them to put that work in? And now I'm upset or what am I upset about? Am I upset that we're rescheduling? Because I do that too, when things come up, like there's a sense of that becomes relatable and that's okay. Is it a sense of, I don't feel respected or, you know, I feel like someone is taking something for granted, then maybe it's time to have a conversation. Um, But if I'm simply upset because I feel like someone isn't showing up, there's probably a deeper reason. Um, And that might be with, you know, me to figure out on my own, but it might be something for me to discuss with the player. And it's, that second piece is just learning to take that step back and have that conversation with myself, um, both as a DM, if I feel like my table is unbalanced, um, but also as a player, if I'm like, if I ever feel like I'm the only one talking or if I feel like I haven't had a session where I've been able to talk, uh, I'll reach out and start kind of having side conversations in between sessions, um, potentially even in character to say, you know, I approach your character in this way and would like to start building this dynamic in sessions but I'm feeling a little shy. Can we start outside of game? Um, So there's a couple of those other things that have come along with those realizations, but largely being a player and taking a step back and realizing that I am people, people are me. We all have things going on. It's that deep. I mean, I think sometimes that can be the hardest part, right? It's just like accepting that other people have stuff that's going on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. nah other people don't have stuff going on i mean when they're teenagers maybe but you know 
As you get older, it's a little bit harder. Yeah. There's a campaign in particular that I played in. I was almost in awe so much of the time by everyone else showing up that I don't know that I had a chance to. And it wasn't that I was clamoring for an opportunity. It was almost becoming fun to watch. Um, But now in retrospect, I'm like, I wonder if they were expecting me to do more. Um, And so there is a sense of, I've also been at a table where everyone felt far more equipped to play, to handle combat, to role play. Um, And that dynamic too is an interesting one to kind of. Interesting. So it's almost like, not even like a shell shock, right? It almost sounds like a, um, like you had to claw for the time that you did get. It was almost like I was so busy, like, enjoying the show, like, watching everybody else in a back that I would forget that I had a character that I needed to be thinking about. And so when it came to my chance to say something, I I was so immersed that I was no longer a character. I was just watching. Um, and I think as the campaign went on, I, I got better. Um, a lot of it was just, like, forcing myself to take notes because that would break me out of just listening to everybody. Um, But that group in particular, it was just a sense of, um, and it's interesting because apparently nobody knew each other. It was just a group of strangers. Uh, We played this one campaign together and then everyone in their opposite directions. Um, Mm. But there was just such interesting chemistry between the DM and the other players, and it was a group of five, so a lot of the time I could just sit back and enjoy. Um, but yeah, when it was my chance to speak, I was almost always like caught off of like, oh no, I have things, I have interests, I have motivations. Uh, what are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can definitely be challenging. Honestly, that's kind of why I, I try to end up playing active characters. Right? Like, I don't mm-hmm. like to play characters who necessarily, like, sit by and watch. I kind of end up playing, like, pseudo-face characters a lot of the time as a consequence. Because, like, I kind of, you know, like being involved. And I'm currently trying to challenge myself um, with, like, the character that I play for Dustin's campaign. Because he's a much more quiet, reserved. And I'm challenging myself to kind of not be the face. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I even went through the trouble of, like, giving myself a kind of mediocre uh, charisma roles, um, no skills, mm-hmm. you know, in it whatsoever. Um, so it's just like, occasionally, like, I do find myself in social situations, but I'm usually quite bad at them. So when I inevitably am forced to roll for something and do poorly at it, I get to, like, basically, like, plead with my eyes with the bard for him to come in and save my life. See, I love that. I uh, always put my points into charisma. Strength is my dump stat. So I make puppy eyes at other campaign members to just pick things up. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's, I mean, that kind of speaks to like a play style, right? (laughs) It's like, I don't want to play, you know, a big beefy. Because I know some people will like play lots of different kind of classes. Do you find yourself gravitating towards just like particular classes because of the style of play that you enjoy? This is one of the few games where... I don't think I have a main and I don't want to have a main. Um, And one of the interesting things is in character creation, class is the last thing that I think of. I tend to have some background or some flaw or some hitch 
that I want that character to have. And I'll build everything around that. And then I'll kind of look to kind of do our earlier conversation. What in the system allows me to do that the easiest, right? What already kind of caters to that needs the least amount of tweaking. And that's usually how I pick my class. Interesting. They're very backwards. Yeah, counter to what I think a lot of people do. Although whenever I have new players, I do like to tell them, just like, tell me what your concept is and we'll work out everything else afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think that that's a really effective way to build a character. In fact, now that you're saying this out loud, it actually kind of echoes the conversation we had when you put your current character that you're playing with um, with my campaign uh, together, Boots, um, mm-hmm. the uh, Tabaxi stroke half-elf. No, full elf. The Tabaxi slash Granny elf uh, character yes. that you're playing. <laughs> how you basically said, hey, here's this concept that I have. Um, it, it, well, I guess it's your story to tell. Would you like to tell the story and how that came about? Uh, sure. Um, so that concept initially started of like, I wanted to have a character that's suffering some form of amnesia, but I didn't want it to be your classic run of the mill amnesia, right? Um, and so at first I was kind of thinking about how do I introduce that amnesia in? And then, um, the other idea that I was kind of playing around with was a character that is pretending to be another class, right? I've had a couple of people, um, both as a player, kind of be part of my party as well as be at the table, uh, who've kind of tried to do this, right? They're a rogue, but they pretend to be a bard or they're a warlock. They pretend to be a sorcerer because they don't want anyone to know that they have a patron. Um, so I kind of wanted to play around with that as well, but I wasn't really sure again, kind of going back to, I didn't think about class, what I wanted them to be hiding or what I wanted to have missing. And so somewhere along the way, I stumbled onto the idea of Boots, um, who is from the streets. They're just a young, like elderly, teen, young 20s, uh, tabaxi. Um, they do odd jobs just to make ends meet. And they've got a couple of uh, figures that they believe, you know, might actually be able to help um, the poor of the city or might actually be able to do something for uh, the folks that they see every day and maybe even for themselves. Um, One day they find themselves making a wish that they wish their life was more like one of these people. And shortly after they wake up in the body of a 500 or so year old elf who is currently running for political office. Now, Boots knows nothing about anything, if we're being honest with ourselves. Um, And one of the things I've had a really fun time playing around with is not knowing all of the people that I should know. And Owen, you know exactly what I mean here. Uh, This 500-year-old elf who's running for Senate has friends everywhere that they've made through the years, whether old or new, and a variety of connections. And my very naive cat is having a hard time trying to piece together, who can I trust? Who do I even know? You know, diaries are only so helpful. It's hard to know every day of a centuries old elf. Um, So I'm having a really fun time playing around with that sense of like, not quite amnesia. Like I don't know the things, but I never knew them. Um, and it's so it's that line between amnesia and deception. Yeah, it's definitely been really fun to to like 
brew situations because I think your character has presented a really unique dynamic to mm-hmm. the roleplay texture of the campaign. Um, something that I haven't really had an opportunity to play with before because I've DM'd for amnesia characters before, but like a lot of times when you're playing amnesia, like as a trope in your character, functionally it doesn't really matter all that much. Like, yeah, you'll spend some time figuring out who you were beforehand, um, mm-hmm. but you know, you don't necessarily have the same level of that dynamic, right? Because, like, it is similar, but it's you're still, at the end of the day, trying to sell them something, which is, I think, a different experience than someone like Nick, who is playing an amnesiac character in the last major campaign that I ran, where he was meeting people that his character should know, and it's him asking, like, very innocent questions about who was I beforehand. Mm-hmm. You don't have the ability to ask that of anybody, so you have no choice but to either, you know, to basically glean that information from inference um alone and i will say my uh intuition has i feel like has been wrong every time i should ask more questions of and who is definitely not safe uh which is very fun for me but ooh, you're doing a great job with those npcs <laughs> it's challenging uh it's, it's the first like heavy political campaign that i've ever run right because um, I'm much more of a of a combat goblin myself. So, mm-hmm. like, I've never really run a campaign where there's a lot of moving pieces as far as, like, the politics that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And as far as, like, a lot of NPCs that are kind of, like, named and working often against each other, but also potentially against you as well. So it's definitely... I, I'm keeping a lot more plate spinning than I normally do, and that I think has manifested some not-so-great consequences occasionally with, you know maybe uh, incoherent notes or maybe missing some details that I really wish I had written down. But, you know, for now, I think things are going okay. I hope I can tie everything together by the end um, such that it's satisfying, but I'm glad you're enjoying the, uh, you know, enjoying the show so far. Oh, I believe in you. I'm having a great time. I was actually uh, reading Xander's notes and they've inspired me to do two things. One, potentially start writing my own journal. Um, as boots and i think part of it will be i keep seeing xander write in this tiny little book and i want to seem cool so i'm also a tiny little book um <laughs> that's i mean that is as deep as this logic needs to go that's very much the relationship between those two characters right now <laughs> um so there's that but it's also inspiring me of like and i've kind of talked to you about this a little bit what happens next Right? Does Boots ever go back to being Boots? Um, and especially now that I'm in a somewhat uh, perilous situation, I think. I'm still cursed. Um, I missed the last session. So I may have been cured, but I doubt it. You have not been. Uh, n- uh, in yep. fact, I'll catch up right now on air. Uh, the current plan. Uh, so they discovered a small city or a small town mm-hmm. that was abandoned. Uh, they got a map out of a uh, abandoned convenience store. They saw two other cities on the small island, so they started taking a walk up north before they stumbled across a kid that had been hiding on the island, uh, had gotten shipwrecked, and you guys got close enough to the other city to find out that it found... (laughs) You got close enough to the other city to find out that it had been turned into a giant wasp nest, basically. And so after some conversation with the kid, it was discovered that they're attracted to, like, fire and heat and stuff, so they're going to have the kid set fire to the island... Uh, jungle and hope that that draws enough of the adults away that you guys can sneak in and kill the queen and uh, all the grubs. Are we really out here trusting this kid? 
yeah, yeah. That that seems to have been. I mean, you were napping at the time, so. Um, oh, that's fine. I just okay. <laughs> he seemed trustworthy. Everybody else seemed to like him. I, I had a. It was had a water deep campaign where my barbarian met uh, some children along the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, just alone, unsupervised, and they were like, "Yeah, no, you can leave us here. Here, we'll be fine." And his response was to gather all the daggers and short swords on the party, and just give them to the children, so the children would be safe. Those were not trustworthy um, children. Um, <laughs> what was wrong with the kids? The his kids logic was: in my tribe, we gave. We gave younger kids bigger weapons. You'll be fine. (laughs) That's barbarian logic if I've ever heard it. (laughs) I mean, that is a logic, certainly. Definitely an interesting choice. Uh, But yeah, this kid seems legit. Uh, His story checked out. He said he got shipwrecked and been stuck there for nine months. Was hiding in the woods. Uh Uh-huh. So... Okay. Also, Xander threatened him with violence, so... There we go. This makes me trust it more. <laughs> um, see, there was a campaign that I was in, uh, and there was a man named Steve from Seattle. Is uh, a character named Steve from Seattle, or is nope, this the player? Nope, this is a human man, NPC. Okay, I'm glad we were able to clarify. From Seattle. Because, like, I have no... <laughs> I have no way of knowing anymore. <laughs> this is an NPC human man from Seattle. Um, and his only claim to fame is that every time we kill a big boss, he's just sitting in the loot room. And he swears, he swears to hell and back that he doesn't know how he got there. He never knows how he got there. He's like, one day I was just walking the streets of Seattle, which of course none of the characters have ever heard of and they don't trust as a real. Um, but one day I was just walking the streets of Seattle and I was trying to go to my local coffee shop and I opened the door and then I ended up here. And as the story continues, it's like, yeah, I woke up in my inn and I was going to the bathroom and I ended up here. And we run into this man over and over and over again insight check after insight check there's intimidation rules persuasion rules it's weeks of this nothing there's never anything he's not lying to us he's not scared of us he's more scared of the fact that he keeps waking up in strange places he was tied to a prophecy but he was genuinely confused uh and we almost murdered him on more than one occasion because we didn't trust him we're like he has to be the bad guy there's no way Seattle's not even a real place. <laughs> you heard it here first. Seattle isn't real. <laughs> Another title for you. Seattle's not even a real place. Oh. <laughs> I hate Don't you love those kind of recurring gags, right? Like, as a, as a GM, you're just like, like, my players are just wasting so much time doing this, but it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Oh, we spent sessions worth of time by the end of it because this was like a year arguing about what we should do with steve and there were like regular votes held people switched sides steve was like a centerpiece of that campaign oh lord 
Wait, would you rank Steve amongst the most memorable NPCs you've interacted with? Most memorable bosses. We didn't fight him, but he felt like it. Real linchpin of the campaign, sounds like. Uh-huh. Well, we found out later it was a good thing that we did not kill him. Because killing someone from another world was one of the things that could trigger this apocalyptic prophecy. So that's why Steve kept appearing. The bad guy was trying to summon him into our world to try to kill him. But the math was always a little bit off. So you guys were getting Steve instead of him. Yes. And you almost did the bad guy's job for him. We really did. <laughs> the realization we had, we were like, oh no, <laughs> we were so, we, oh, we were almost the reason this didn't work out. <laughs> Literally the plot twist from Duels to the Roses story campaign. Oh no. You think I'm joking? Oh no, I know you're very, being serious. That game doesn't I have much of a story, game. but the, the one bit of story it does have. <laughs> The one bit of story it does have is it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Basically. Interesting. So, um <laughs> kind of guiding us a little bit back on rails. Um so What are rails? I I don't know. It depends on the campaign setting, I guess. Um Maybe so... they're in Seattle, wherever that is. That's not a real place and you know it. <laughs> I mean the bards may sing of it as a place of myth and legend um yeah i i hear there may be lots of wizards that live there i don't know so what do you mean by that i i don't mean anything but uh I, i'm told it's a coastal town so you know are you just making this up so would you say that boots has changed a fair bit from your initial concepting <laughs> <laughs> um <clears throat> yes Partly because uh, Boots did not have a ton of initial concept. Um, in the sense that I wanted them to be a little bit of a blank slate, naive character, right? They know their life and they think it was perfect outside of that. Um, and so the fundamental shift so far has been, no, uh there's that sense of like, no, maybe the world is not bright and shiny. Um, maybe the alley wasn't so bad after all. Maybe the people you can trust aren't the ones up on screen. Um, and so some of those realizations are now coming to the front. Um, and so the main question that I would say Boots is wrestling with right now is, do they accept that the world is not a shiny place? Um, and step down as Philodendro or go back to being Boots or kind of move on uh, separate from their candidacy in, into being a senator? Or do they dig their heels in and say Philodendra wasn't fit for all that she had uh, and I'm going to do this right? Because this kind of goes back to Boots' inception. Uh, they thought this person could make life better. And they only wished for their life because they thought it would be better. Um, so I think that's kind of what Butsu is wrestling with now and where I keep going back and forth between do I, you know, do we try to fi find Philodendra and murder her first? Do we swap back? How, how deep do I go into this hole as Phil and what does that even mean? 
uh, especially with some of the newer things you've introduced in terms of man in secret underground magic mirror. That has changed things. <laughs> oh, oh! Did did the uh, introduction of a secret society cha- change yes. the way that you viewed the character? <laughs> well, in the sense that, like, it, you know, murdering Philodendra seemed perfectly reasonable up until the secret society was involved. Literally because now there's this, <laughs> yep, which is the, the sense of like, oh no, I there's no way if I couldn't pretend to her neighbors and like her coworkers. There's no way I'm deceiving a secret society. I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> and there's there's no way. So wrestling with that right now, because I think where they're at is they really want to hold on to like Philodendra's life. Uh, but they there is no safe way necessarily to do that at this time. <laughs> okay, but like, it's called are greed. we sure Boots is an idiot? Because an idiot doesn't always know they're an idiot. Uh, Boots has been told throughout their life they may not be the fastest cat in the race. Um, but were they telling the truth? I mean, this would be the way to find out, wouldn't it? <laughs> Is Boots too dumb to figure it out? Is Boots too dumb to realize that they're smart? You know, they may genuinely be too dumb to realize they're smart. They are clever. Like, I will say, um, there's a sense of, like, they're not... The jig is not quite up. Um, I know where we are in the campaign right now, Boots is getting very sleepy. And most of the party knows that they are Boots. Um, and so they've become a little more loose-lipped, but they are still holding fast to trying um, to really commit to the bit because at this point it's survival. Like that cleverness comes from a sense of like, this is what I have to do. I, I got to get by. I got to I gotta figure out the next thing. There's a sense of being very scrappy with Boots. However, it is very short-term thinking. The plans do not consider longer term ramifications of i don't know replacing a senator with yourself right everything's it's, peachy keen until the consequences catch up kind of it's kind of like a live fast kind of mentality very much so well 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 it isn't the consequences of my own act right i got nine lives this is this is one like at best maybe two secret society involved so I got seven more. We'll be fine. Oh. That's how that works, right? I don't know. Uh, Ask your patron. They probably know. Uh, no, they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> How's that relationship been? Because we haven't really had like a wealth of opportunity to explore it just yet. So what's your overall impression, I guess, of that? And I know this is going to be super stimulating for our audience because I'm asking a bunch of specific questions about a campaign that they can't watch, but... Uh, trust me when I, I think this is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what's interesting is I know very little of my patron, and I've kept it that way on pers- purpose. There's a sense of uh, Boots does not trust that patron, but also 
is fundamentally scared, right? Like this kind of adding a little more context, they were just absentmindedly, you know, thinking to themselves one day how nice it would be. And all of a sudden they woke up, right? There's a sense of like, before this moment, magic didn't have that grand of a place in their life. Like it wasn't something that necessarily impacted them day to day to this degree, definitely not to this degree. And now they have a life where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Owen, but there's probably a couple of magic items just on display on the walls. Um, so there's that sense of they do not trust the patron that has given them all of these things overnight. That is not a type of power that they are familiar with, that they understand, that they are comfortable with at all. So I'd say there's definitely a sense of fear. Um, and that's kind of made exacerbated by the fact that the price, so to speak, that this patron asks for is this crystal that seems to be a result of necromancy rituals. And so somewhere in the back of Boots's still developing brain, there's the logic of, you know, if I pay this price, that means I have to get another one. That means this will happen again. Um, I don't know that they fully conceptualize that this will continue happening regardless. You might as well use your consumables, bud. Um, <laughs> but I, I see that happening pretty soon. I gotcha. Yeah, it's always interesting when you have to characterize like important NPCs that don't show up very much. Um, although I guess this is a little different because like you kind of have them on the phone mm -hmm. <laughs> at, a, at, a, at your beck and call in that respect. But it's always interesting trying to like role play as like NPCs that are friendly but with like a mysterious twist to it. And I'm not sure if you've had like any experience role playing that kind of character before. I'm curious if you have any insight on that. Um yes and no. It's a played twist characters, but unfortunately the campaigns see out to the twist. Um we just kind of dismantled schedules, all that kind of thing. Um, it did not work out. But I've played a couple of twist characters, and it's always, in, like, what's fun for me is, like, that revelation of information piece by piece. Because um, some of it has to be purposely dropped, right? If I, um, I'll say, like, from the very first session, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it a point to do things that probably an old elf woman would not do um and then when someone calls me out or if someone calls me out on it immediately just say oh yes i'm an old lady and you know old women do like I, i'll say like my grandmothers did that where they were like i'm old it doesn't matter right and so this was my response of like i'm old it doesn't matter um and so i think that worked in the beginning and then at some point when the revelation was made of like no that's just me reminding myself that I'm supposed to be acting like an old lady. Um, it became kind of fun for everybody. And I anticipate as long as I'm in that elf body and when we get back to kind of NPCs, I'll start saying that phrase again and it kind of has a different meaning for the group. Um, so I've done a similar thing with a character uh, where it was a player in Curse of Strahd. Um, and I was a character that was actually from Barovia. It was just like, a child who had been separated from their family. Um, and so the party is initially trying to, you know, help me find them again, return the lost child. 
Um, eventually, we would have learned that the child may have come from a very questionable family aligned with Strahd. And we got to make some choices about giving the child back. But oh. we never quite made it that far. I'm sure the vampire is not going to do anything wrong with the child. No, uh, never. The child was definitely not a planned sacrifice. No, of course not. That would be nope. unconscionable. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a whole thing where, like, they return me. You know, we have a feast to, re you know, celebrate that I've returned. Um, and the players kind of have a couple set because the DM and I had kind of planned this. But uh, players would have a session or two uh, to get to know this group of people because it was like a traveling village kind of situation. They'd get a chance to meet everybody and there would be hints dropped across the board of like something is not right. Almost like Midsommar, like the celebration is not quite the celebration we think it is. Um, and if they so choose, we can run away together. Um, and if they leave me behind, then... I have a separate character kind of ready on standby, um, and that character will come back in the final fight because she will be helping Strahd. So, those were the choices. That sounds like a lot of fun, though. That it would have been. I would... Uh, things were going great, and then, like, two people had some major life changes. We couldn't keep the campaign going with us. Um, so it had to disseminate but that's one that i would love to bring back again for that type of character where um the character is not even aware that you know they're going back into the arms of danger but at some point uh, everybody in the party realizes things are not as seem. oh and you can start to see that i have a trend here <laughs> i mean yeah i'm noticing a bit of a pattern I do want to ask you something though because you said that you couldn't keep the campaign going do you have like a minimum party size that you try and maintain um, I would say three players works, four is great, six becomes a lot, and nothing more. I see. Nothing less than three? Um, trying to think of if I run something less. I just don't think I've ever run or been in one. Have you been in a two? Um... So I haven't been in a two-player campaign. I have run a one-on-one -on -one campaign, though. Um, mm -hmm. or, let me rephrase. I started running a one-on-one -on -one campaign, um, and it didn't get, like, horribly far, but I have done it. Um, I will say it's a really interesting experience, and one that I do want to repeat again. I don't have the bandwidth right now, unfortunately, um, to run more campaigns than I currently do. Um, but if at any point any of my, my current campaigns do come to a close, I may look for an opportunity to run a, a small scope campaign, um, with maybe one or two players. Cause for me, when it comes to like DMing, I really like shorthanded parties, um, mm -hmm. where like they're missing key components of like the standard adventuring party. Like that's part of the reason why I really love the, the cat's meow party that we have right now. Um, because there are so many things that your party just does not do. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, the party comp for those at home, right? We have a dragon disciple uh, monk or a dragon, yeah, dragon monk, right? Um, goblin. We have a gunslinger, right? The, the fighter gunslinger or whatever. Um, 
or I think it's just a gunslinger because it's custom class. So we have a gunslinger who's like Arcana slanted, right? Can't do magic, but his magic gun does magic. Um, so we have monk that we have a barbarian uh, <laughs> who is a chef. And then we have you as a warlock, right? So like key things that are typically missing from this part. We have no true arcane caster, right? The best mm-hmm. we got is the warlock, and that's not like a lot. Plus, you don't know anything about magic in character. So it's kind of inconvenient that the one person who can cast magic is the person who knows nothing about it. And the person who can't cast magic is the person who's actually knowledgeable about these things. Yep. There's no healing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, no magical healing, and any any restored HP is going to come from rests or potions. That's it. <laughs> um, there's no real rogue. Uh, the, the monk is close enough. Um, I, I think they are the monk between the monk and the uh, gunslinger because they have like tinkerer's tools, and I think um, the monk is proficient in something. But like, yeah, that's just other than that, you just have a bunch of like meat shields. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I never noticed quite how skewed our campaign uh, makeup is. Though now it makes sense why Phil either takes no damage or is bleeding, dying, barely hanging on. Um, (laughs) There is no in-between. Yeah, yeah. Well, because, like, you're the only one who can't really take a hit. Right. I'm either, you know, 100 feet back, perfectly safe, I'm okay, I'll throwing eldritch blast that's fine uh or i was the first one hit my ac is abysmal i'm already on the ground somebody help yeah those well, are I mean, our options i mean your introduction to the campaign was uh all right combat started oh and you're down yep so the <laughs> ladder and it, there's been a pattern <laughs> oh that sounds great <sighs> It's like when no, the, rest but of the it, party is hired as uh, as your bodyguard. Basically, it makes a lot of sense. I've been telling myself it's my own karma. Um, so I was in the campaign. Um, actually, the one I was talking about earlier, where I lost time by everybody else's interactions. Um, I was a Dex paladin, and the DM could never hit me. Um, and I was not that cocky about it. But every once in a while, he'd be like twenty five, and I'd be like, nope. Uh, and that Shitty was always so much face. fun to do. Truly, I was like, <laughs> "Try again, adult dragon." Um, Twenty-five. So... How trite. <laughs> yep. So I was uh, like a like you know fun obnoxious about it, um, and so I say that this is my karma. Uh, Phil is my karma. Boots is my karma. Where I think my AC is like thirteen. Uh, a twig falling out of a tree could hit me. Yeah. You only just got, like, a decent HP pool thanks to a magic item you found. That's true. Because prior to that, I think you had a negative con modifier as well. Oh, no. I think I might have had one. I tend to put at least one. I do believe in HP being important at level ups. Um, that but that's it. Us. Yeah, and it was either, like, zero or one, but I didn't spec too many points. Yeah, we are doing semi-random HP as well, which also is, is a pretty big impactor, too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I love random HP. I'll be the weird one in that. I, I used I do to be too. a lot lower on it. Um, like, for a long while, I would run campaigns, and every roll would be max HP. And, like, I've learned to embrace the the randomness a little bit. 
and like yeah it sucks when you roll low on on your hp roll right at level up and like that kind of stinks but I, I find that it does a good job of um making combat encounters a little bit more dicey i think for the player characters um for longer and so that's something i've definitely learned to embrace a little bit more uh, i still don't like the feel bad of like rolling a two or something on hp level up so i still let the players take the average if it's if they roll lower than that but um so that way they have like a decent hp pool but you know i i do like that there's some variance there i'm currently playing in a star wars campaign where we're doing just rolling for hp totally random and i am playing a jedi with a negative con modifier and i don't know if you know anything about Star Wars Saga Edition, GG, but Jedi are supposed to be, like, they're fighters. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sitting there with a negative con modifier as somebody who should be trying to be on the front lines. I have, I think, 50 HP, 52 or something like that, and that is the lowest HP in the party. And probably oh, no. a damage threshold of, like, 12 or something. <laughs> 19 we're like level eight that's still not very high that is very low um if you're not familiar with damage threshold i'm gonna say this for the Mm -hmm. audience's benefit too but basically in sagas they have something called the condition track it's similar to exhaustion in fifth edition where it's a progressive track where the lower you get on it the more cumulative negatives you take um only in sagas it is set up as like significant negatives to your role so initially it's like a negative one at level one negative two Mm -hmm. negative five negative ten and then i think you're just dead unconscious unconscious unconscious. yeah so you want to lean into the negative con and be like had a bunch of uh injury while you were in training and so your shoulder acts up your knee acts up you're just not as up to par Uh, but you try your hardest well, in addition to that, right, so the way that exhaustion works in 5th edition, of course, you just kind of occasionally get points for, like, failing rolls, right, at DM discretion. Mm-hmm. In sagas, if you ever take a single, like, source of damage equal to or more than your damage threshold, then you drop a point on the condition track. Sometimes you drop two points on the condition track, depending on different abilities they may have. Um, and you Done can weapons. spend yeah certain weapons and you can spend i think like three swift actions which is basically your whole turn to recover one point on the condition track but like you're basically skipping your turn to do that mm-hmm. um so like that's usually not great <laughs> if that's happening uh so it's at 19 right and also like sagas has higher damage overall like i think the base i know the base lightsaber does 2d8 right 2d8 plus half your level plus your strength yeah so like equivalent level threat right is automatically doing 2d8 plus four plus whatever their strength mod is which is probably like you know three yeah plus three or something so you know like average damage is probably dropping him on the condition track it's great take deflect take the deflect talent please absolutely not (laughs) i don't have space in my build for that you say do you think um... you're gonna make it the whole campaign mark I don't know. We'll see. Um, but the the way it is for roleplay purposes is my character focuses more on the, the mysticism side and less on the, the fighty side. Mm-hmm. Even though I use my lightsaber 
more than I use the force. Um, but my character's personality leans more to the philosophical and mysticism part. And uh, my build kind of reflects that. Uh, a lot of the Jedi will go straight Jedi or Jedi and soldier and take a whole bunch of combat uh, abilities. And I just didn't. Force adept? Eh. What? Did you take force adept? I did. I took one level of force adept as my uh, eighth level. And I'm probably going to take more. I'm a fan. Look at you being a cool kid. So, like, there's there's in-universe reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, if you lean into the, the force side of it, there are things you can do to enhance your... Um, your combat potential like there's a there's a talent that gives you an extra die of damage stuff like that so it's not like i'm losing my combat potential it's just i have to not be the tank which thankfully there is another person in the party who can do that he is built to be the the front lines jedi gonna say do you have a front line in second do you prefer to front do I what? Do you prefer to frontline? Uh, in Star Wars, I usually do, and even now, I kind of do. <laughs> um, I should not be on the front lines, but I have, I have no choice as the quote-unquote leader of the group to sometimes just be like, nope, we need to go in. We don't have time to like strategize our combat formation. We just got to go. Look. Cannons belong on the front lines if they're made out of glass. Anyone tell you differently? That's true. And I do a lot of damage. <laughs> it's like a tactical Same. nuke. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I know we don't have like a wealth more time in the episode, but I did have a, a, mm-hmm. a one question I did really want to ask you um, to try mm-hmm. and get this in before we close up. Um, so... I know you kind of self-identify as a theater kid, right? Um, we have played with players, and we know people, of course, who are not very comfortable um, with doing the, uh, the embracing the theater of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the experience. Do you have any tips for people who are maybe shy or, you know, maybe aren't really comfortable doing that kind of, like, thing, but maybe really want to? Like, they've been inspired by Critical Role, but just don't know how to approach it without being, like, super self-conscious about it? Yeah, um, I'd say the easiest way to start is to do it when no one. So, you know, whether that is, you know, just you in your house or on your drive home, whenever you have 15, 20 minutes, put yourself in the mind of that character that you're building or that you want to play or that you're currently playing. Um, How would they react to your day? What do they want to go home and do? Um, How do they want to spend this afternoon? And you don't necessarily have to go do those things, right? If your barbarian wants to go raid a village, do, please do not go raid a village. Um, but you can consider those things and start building that persona um, and start kind of being like, oh, and if they were to do that, what would they do first? And kind of just play around in your own mind. Because um, I think that helps with some of the um, in the moment trying to figure out what your character would do. And that's how I... Uh, 
started kind of battling my own, I'll call it getting distracted, um, was I would prep beforehand. It'd be like, you know, this is some stuff that's going on in the story right now. These are some characters. These are some conversations we might have or some things I might want to bring up um, or some things that my character might be caring about right now. And so taking that time in between sessions, thinking about those things and kind of going in with a list um, so that if there was a pause, if someone did ask my character what they wanted to do, there was some of that prep work done and I was able to kind of lean into it. Um, the second would be if you've got a friend, practice with them, run some lines, try your goofy accents, uh, you know, wear a hat because your character wears a hat. Um, there's some of that like theory, like method acting theater kid um, that I personally enjoy and that I think can help kind of sink into it of like, you know, if you wear a hat around your house when you're thinking of your character and you throw on that hat when you're playing, it might help you ease into uh, actually playing that character and feeling like them in the moment. Um, and that comes from you know, stuff they tell you in theater, but also like, you know, use the same pencil when you study or uh, wear your lucky socks to your job interview. It's that sense of like, you are more confident because you know you can do this. You've done this with this kind of environment before. Um, so to summarize, practice, um, just kind of play around with it. And if you don't know what you want your character be to be or who you want them to be, uh, look to media. You probably have a favorite character somewhere already and you would tweak a couple things about them and then that's your alternate universe person, right? That's the alter ego you would create. So kind of go through, find the goofiest character or the one that feels the most like you or the least like you, whatever you're in the mood for. Um, and just try them out like 10, 15 minutes at a time. I like it. Yeah. That also kind of reflects how I tend to prepare for sessions as a DM, funnily enough. Mm -hmm. Like, if I know that, like, certain NPCs are going to be present, I'll often run lines, um, like, to myself, like, you know, in the car or something, um, about either things that they're going to say, things that they're thinking about, um, stuff like that. And I've done that since the beginning. Um, for like getting in character for like important characters. I don't do it for every, you know, Jim and Bob or whatever that you guys run across, but um, mm -hmm. for the named important NPCs, I do try to do that. And I think that is really helpful. Um, it's good advice for sure. It's interesting you say that. I'm realizing that is part of my DM kind of prep process as well. That's interesting. It's fine. And there's like, also. Think about it, right? Yeah, and I, and like I'm thinking about now of like it easier because you're prepared to drop those hints. You have an idea of the hints that you've dropped, um, and I, I think that kind of relates back to even when you're a player, you may not be talking the whole time, but in the couple of lines in a session you get, or in the couple of minutes that you're interacting, what do the players get to gleam about your character and who you are outside of just the plot questions that the team is trying to answer. Um, so I think there's also that piece of like, how do you interject yourself in those answers? Personality wise. For sure. One thing I guess to add on to that, um, just as like an additional thing, because I know I've seen players fall into the trap of like 
trying to play like a silent brooding character and then getting really disappointed when nobody wants to talk to them about their backstory. That's really cool and very secretive, um, but mm-hmm. they don't want to tell anybody about it. Um, do you have any tips for people who want to play that style of character? Um, and before you go, I just want to kind of touch that like Boots is kind of like that in that like you have a lot of reason to not want to share information about yourself. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that you did put yourself out on a limb early on in the campaign, less than 10 sessions in, um, and kind of spill those beans, you know, quote unquote unintentionally, but but did spill them um, kind of very intentionally, it, it feels like. Mm-hmm. So do you have any tips for someone who maybe wants to play a character who's, you know, supposed to come off as secretive, but really does want the players like out of, in a meta sense to like interact with their backstory and interact with them? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I'd say it's interesting because with Boots, um, within the first couple of sessions, if I don't tell people or if I don't at least give one player a heads up or a reason to suspect me, they won't. And then I can't explain anything else that I'm thinking. A lot of it became this blocker of I cannot answer the plot questions or I can't engage in the conversation or the the way that I want to because there's this secret in the air that I just can't get past right so for me very early on it became this blocker of the longer I hide this the less I can engage with the group and I needed to engage with the group um and so that kind of took me down this path of well who is the person that boots trust the most um and the answer was none of them and so it became the new question of who would boots trust to have done something worse and that was a very easy (laughs) question to answer nick you didn't hear this even if you heard this is it is it bad that my first thought was it's got to be nick's character (laughs) he's the least likely to take it poorly of the group and the most likely to hear me out all the way right and because i think he's done more questionable things And so that kind of helped me pick who to start with. And then once I told them, it just kind of, it was event after event where because I got tired, I started to pretend to be more comfortable and I started dropping more hints. Um, Had that not happened, maybe only one player would still know. But there was that sense of once the cat was out of the bag, I just kind of kept rolling with it. Um, Uh, Now back uh. to the other. Yeah, there are a lot of cat puns in this uh, campaign. It is all over. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the inevitable shoe puns or boot puns. Um, oh, those yeah. Are, those, I think, are next level. And I, I'm really looking forward to someone telling you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or something. Oh, yeah. I, oh, no. Ugh, I'm ready. It's going to be the campaign of puns. Um, I'm going to have to prepare puns ahead of time. You but... did this. You did this to us. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, But I think the other, so back to your other, the other part of your question, um, what advice would I give? I I think part of it is, you know, how can you either A, have your brooding um, be so noticeable that someone has to ask a question, right? Like everyone's at a birthday party, everyone is at your birthday party and you're mad about it, or you just got the biggest piece of loot, and you're still disappointed. 
um, those opportunities may not come around as often, but there is that sense of how can you make that brooding feel so out of place that someone within the group feels the need to ask, right? That another uh, character actually asks, because if something mundane or something bad happens and then you're broody, you're upset, um, you know, that, that's normal-ish behavior. Um, but if something good happens and then you're very upset, that is a silent way to trigger folks to come talk to you or kind of have that interaction. Um, so whether it's brooding or, you know, whatever reaction it may be, kind of making a point to have a reaction that is off kilter um, and kind of asks for that engagement further to keep the plot moving. Because those opportunities may not come along as often, um, I think the other piece can be, you know, leave your character open. Um, meta game yourself a little further in the you leave your notebook out because you know there's a sneaky person in your party or you ask somebody to get a beer because you know there's a you know this person might have done questionable things and you could get a couple of beers in with them and then tell them your secrets and they won't even remember a thing right so there's a sense of you know how would your character interact with someone or what is that next what, what is that thing that they actually need um, to be able to interact with the party? Is it, you know, they're missing that trust? Okay, pick one person, go get a beer. Is it uh, they're missing information? Then, you know, go rifle through everybody else's stuff and people are bound to ask what you were looking for. Um, it, there's a sense of sometimes you have to go ahead and do the very conspicuous thing as an inconspicuous character so that people will come talk to you. Um, because otherwise, you know, especially if you were, are a slightly more silent character that can just come off of like, Oh, there, that is what that personality is. There's not a sense of a missed interaction, but just that is the ambiance or the vibe they're trying to give off. Yeah. And I think that like, the way that you framed it, I think, kind of touches on a really good piece of advice that kind of is there but is unspoken in your response, which is mm -hmm. you need to still engage with the other people at the table. Like, however you, you set it up, like, that is something that fundamentally needs to happen. And so mm -hmm. when you do those things, because I think a lot of people can get to, like, oh, I need to brood, right? And, and like, continue to be unhappy even when good things are happening to me, right? But I think where a lot of where I've seen a lot of people mess up is um, someone will finally ask like, Hey, you know, I, you know, I, I noticed you got the, the magic sword, but when you looked at it, you looked really sad. It's like, are you all right? And then their response is, I don't really want to talk about it. And then I'm going to go to the corner and sit. And it's like, Oh, all right. Well, that's sure. That, whatever, then. man, I guess. <laughs> that's that i guess and then like you know that might happen two or three times and suddenly what you've done is you've taught the party to not talk to you about your backstory mm -hmm. um so you kind of have to be willing to play ball a little bit i think it is kind of what i gathered from from what you were saying yes very much so uh, a great summary i would say um and i think there's a party that i kind of think of of is running a Curse of Strahd campaign. Um, and in our early days, 
we had a player who was a brooding paladin, right? They were there against their will. They were upset. No one in their life ever cared about them. They didn't care about anybody else. Um, and they kind of ended up here one day. And so at one point, the party is trying to move forward. And this paladin is quite literally just sitting on the ground because they don't want to. Um, and there's a deeper lore reason there. There's some backstory there. But when the party asks, and the party asks, I think, like, two times, of like, you know, is, you know, are you coming? Why aren't you coming? Come on, let's go. Is everything okay? Um, the person just keeps saying, I'm fine. I'm just not coming. I'm fine. I'm just not coming. And so very quickly it went from, you know, the party trying to convince this person to getting very aggressive. And uh, I think one person like moved earth to get them to move. Um, and kind of later on as the story progressed, it became this hallmark of that person would just go sit off to the side until the party decided. Um, and we had an eventual conversation as a group where, you know, that person said, well, the party just does whatever they want. And the party said, well, because we don't want to spend 20 minutes every session convincing you of what to do. Um, and so there was a sense of kind of learning how to have, like have learning for that player, how to just join a conversation. Cause they were like, no one ever invites me. No one ever talks to me. So there was a sense of, you know, just speak up. If there are ideas being tossed out and you agree or disagree, speak up then rather than once the party has come to an agreement. Um, and if you have something to say, rather than waiting for folks to come to you, you know, play your card. Say, I am our magic user. You guys should probably listen to me on this. And you'll be shocked to see that they will. Hopefully. Yeah, so like your experiences may differ. We talked out our feelings a little bit and then started to see things a little bit better. Um, but there is definitely that sense of, you know, in their minds, the character is just stubborn and rebellious that way. And for everyone else, it was, my God, we are not going to convince him to do everything we need him to do. He needs to be on board. Yeah, like, in a meta sense, right? Like, it, it mm -hmm. doesn't even matter if your character would do It's like, if you wrote, if you're playing a character and your response is, well, my character wouldn't do that, right? then you've kind of made a fundamental mistake in designing your character for this role-playing game where we're playing together as a group. You kind of implicitly need to, to design a character who is comfortable in groups to some extent, um, or mm -hmm. at least willing to participate in groups to some extent, um, in order to just facilitate the game. And if you're not doing that, and you're not finding a way for your character to participate in the group in some capacity, then you've kind of failed at like kind of the, the principle i mean that's maybe harsh right but you've kind of made an error i think um in in designing your character like a fundamental flaw that i think that in order to get the character to function better you do need to kind of look past or find a way convincingly in character very quickly to get over whatever that is mm -hmm. i'd agree um it was interesting with that group. Uh, the other kind of conversation that we were having was around, like, you know, the time, like, spending our time well with an, uh, a session, right? Doing a good amount of time management. You know, if we are spending 20 minutes convincing this person, uh, then we're not spending 20 minutes talking to an NPC and vice versa. Um, and that was something more from the player side of, like, they 
I think were more self-balancing and trying to manage than I was. Um, but within that, what was interesting was when we started having these conversations around, you know, how do we want to engage in making these decisions as a having these conversations uh, between our characters and kind of getting to solutions and decisions that we can all at least get behind, even if we agree, um, there became this conversation of when is the best time to do that, right? Is it when we're traveling? Is it once we've gotten to the hideout? Is it, you know, inter like kind of spaced in between happening all the time? Um, when are some of those conversations happening? Uh, because there was a sense, I think, for some of the players they mentioned that, you know, if we're doing it at the hideout, we don't know, maybe it's been two rounds and something is about to sneak up on us, right? If we do it while we're traveling, we don't know, we might encounter something. Um, if we do it before we leave, then we'll never even get up, never actually leave. And so there was also that kind of conversation of, you know, do not let that paranoia of characters having conversation um, and possible encounters keep you from having those conversations. Um, because once there was more of that engagement uh, between the group, kind of not just when a decision had to be made, but just when there was interaction and things could be processed as a group, um, that we saw a lot of those other like stubborn behaviors and, you know, trying to get people to buy in a lot of that stopped being a problem. Um, so there's also that in between of where do you find that time as characters to bond enough that you trust each other when we make these big decisions. I think that's really helpful. And just to kind of add to that, I think one thing that does help me is kind of considering where you want your character arc to go. Um, mm -hmm. So for characters that, that I've played in the past, at least, where I do consider them to have a, a sort of, um, I don't know, maybe like a brooding nature. And I guess Marvin can vouch because like I've played a number of these characters with him at this point. Um, I try to have an idea on where I want that character's like story arc to terminate. Not that I know exactly what's going to play out, but I know like kind of as a character where I want them to go. And I find that that's been really helpful for me, um, kind of keeping that in perspective. So what I mean is that, like, when I play, I was playing a um, Lost Minds of Pendelver campaign um, that eventually turned into Salt Marsh, and mm -hmm. I was playing a, uh, a half-elf necromancer, and they had, like, the edgelordiest of edgelord, like, backstory I could come up with. Um, it was so gratifying, because I'd wanted to play a necromancer for, like, probably five years or something. Um, and finally had a chance. So uh, I'm playing this character, uh, Erica. She's from Neverwinter. She has a, uh, you know, kind of a noble, a noble house that she's from, right? And her backstory is basically that, like, during some expedition, she was put in a death trap with a bunch of her, like, uh, with a bunch of other students. And to escape, she had to, like, sacrifice the whole class. And so she wants to get, like, revenge on the, the mage's college that, like, set that whole situation up right mm -hmm. super edgelord but like i was playing the character as someone who had a lot of attachment issues right like mm -hmm. i effectively killed my best friend and i feel like i was kind of put in this situation by my family so like i'm going into this with a character who like doesn't trust anybody doesn't want to trust anybody wants to do everything by themselves wants to feel very self-reliant 
and very much does not like those group dynamics, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think I even slid the character as, like, chaotic evil initially. Although I think I, we ended up settling at lawful evil, which is what I was actually playing. Um, and so it's like, all right, well, what do I want this character's arc to be? I, want, I knew this from the get-go, is I want to play this character as, like, a found family arc. Like, I want this character to eventually grow those bonds with these people and to have those, those feelings. And, you know, that starts off initially as being very hostile, right, to the group dynamics. Um, but begrudging respect, I found, was a good inroad to, like, generate that conversation, right? Uh, a begrudging, like, understanding that I'm not capable of doing everything, I, you know, by myself. And that mm-hmm. even if I don't like these people, necessarily, like, I still have to admit that, like, yeah, the, the guy who's really good at punching stuff was, you know, helpful, if nothing else. Um, and so that kind of starts as, as a, uh, as, like, a, kind of an onboarding point where, like, I can start the conversation by just thanking them for doing a thing, right? Because, like, even if I don't like them, I can still recognize that, like, you know, thank you for, for stepping in and, and, and taking that hit, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that eventually progresses into a number of sessions later when we're finally in Salt Marsh um, and we're, like, underwater or whatever. And... In the moment, I had, like, you ever have one of those, um, like, rogue thoughts while you're playing a game? Like, boy, it'd be real funny if I did X, and then you decide to not do X, because, like, that would end the campaign. Uh-huh. So I had one of those moments in the game where, like, we're underwater. I'm the wizard, so I'm a little bit far away, and I have, like, um, stone wall or whatever as one of my spells. So I'm like, oh, I just thought of something funny. I could, like, stone wall this entire room closed, and I could be the only one to escape. Like, because the fight wasn't going well. And I was like, oh, this is a funny exit strategy, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, I, like when it gets to my turn, I could just stonewall this chamber. Everybody else in my party will have no way to get back out. So they'll certainly drown. But also none of the monsters who are stuck in there will be able to get to me. And I will be able to get away. Right. You'll remember them forever. Yeah, yeah. Your party won't be forgotten. Yeah. And they aren't going to make it out. Forever, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I thought of that, and I was like, I think that, like, session one, Erica might have done that. But I didn't do it then, right? I'd traveled with them, right? I'd done the entire Fandelver module. It's an excellent module if you, if you, you and the audience have played mm-hmm. it, right? Um, I've done that whole module, and we're, like, halfway through Saltmarsh at this point. I've played a lot of games with these characters, and, you know, we're reasonably high level at this point. So I decided not to, and when we eventually did get back out and, you know, got to camp or whatever, like, when I was talking to, ironically, another strong, silent character in the party, um, although for a totally different reason, um, like, they weren't brooding, they were just a man of few words. Uh, in fact, I remember a lot of their role play was um, them describing the message that they communicate with a glance, <laughs> which was, like, <laughs> it was genius to me. Uh, I love that for them, though. Yeah, it's like, I'm just going to give give Erica a look, and in that look, she'll know that I, I, I want, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that uh, she did that, and I'll just grunt. That's the difference between you and I. I make my party members cry. <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> it's fun this way. So... Um, no, I actually am DMing for and there's a similar dynamic between, I think, a dwarf and a half-elf, um, where... Martin um, absolutely hates Dumb Ducky, cannot stand him, 
Dumdaki is an absolute idiot, could not put it two and two together, uh, even if they were already connected. Huh. And uh, recently, Dumdaki saved Martin's life. And so, whereas every session, uh, Martin is always saying how he's going to from throw Dumdaki off a cliff or whatever manner of like very unserious threats that he'll make uh, recently um, in a session, he like said something nice of like, you know, we should save him something from dinner. Or we should save him a seat or something. And uh, most of the party was like, what did you just say? You want to do what for him? And he's like, you saved my life. Like the most monotone. <laughs> I love like, that though. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's perfect. That's that's growth, Martin. You you're that's appreciation. Look at you go. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, that's great. And like the monotone delivery, I think sells it for me. Mm-hmm. Like it's <laughs> it's not a it's like it's not a value judgment. It was just a statement of fact. Yep. He saved my life. We'll save him a seat. That's that's all he gets. <laughs> yeah. If he wants more, he's going to have to do a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. It's like, now if he had saved my life and won me a lot of money and got me a beautiful partner, all right, well, then maybe we'd be talking a little bit more. But, you know, he gets a seat at the table at least. This is very true. Um, to finish my thought from earlier, um, during, like, camp the following day or whatever... Um, I actually pulled, like, the stoic character aside, and they were, like, a cleric, so I, I confided in them, and I was like, you know, I, I I just want to let you know that, you know, back there, I I, I thought about sealing the door. Like, I, I thought about leaving. And, uh, well, I didn't. And, you know, he's like, the, 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 the character uh, turns to me and says something along the lines of, like, you know, I don't think for a moment you would have considered doing that. Like, you're better than that. And it's like, well, I don't really think that I am. Like, I clearly considered it. It's like, yeah, but you didn't. And it's like, ah, this is what character growth feels like. <laughs> Actually, I forgot about this one. I had a, um, at one point was a paladin. I was a very stoic paladin. Mm -hmm. um, it was an Oathbreaker paladin and was very much anti-authority, you know, wanted, like, I was okay with working with a group. Um, but I wanted to make something of myself that didn't have to do with the system and the guard because I had been part of the Royal Guard. Um, so I wanted to kind of strike it on my own. And it was a very silent, stoic character. Um, and what was interesting is there was another party member who would go out of their way, both in role-playing and in combat, to save my character or be nice to my character or what have you. Um, and they themselves were like an undying barbarian. And so I started kind of writing these stories about how nice they were to me and how they had survived death, not once, but twice, three times, four. Um, and the thing with my character was my character was uh, very forgetful. And so I would leave these diaries all over the place. Like I would buy a new one in every town. And I would start writing and it became this kind of ongoing joke at one point that I was just leaving them because I didn't want, I wanted to pack light and I didn't care enough to bring my journal with me. Um, by the end of the campaign, the DM kind of surprised us uh, 
as it turns out, I may have started a religion uh, with my party member as the deity, where at one point some of the boons that we were getting were because people were worshipping this party member, because they were the stories and tales of their greatness littered throughout inns all over the kingdom. Oh no, you were the King James Bible of these hotels. I was! So there's a sense of, like, even as a stoic character, even not saying any words, just interact with the party. Like, it doesn't have to be king, and it can be the goofier the better. Um, so much Riz, you found it around on accident. It really did. Well, there there came a point where, like, like, 17 or something, and someone's, you know, bows to Zuru, and Zuru's like, oh, that's not necessary. Like, you know, I get that we're kind of powerful around these parts, and people know about us now, but, like, you know, this is a lot. Um, and they're like, no, 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 but you are the great Lord Zuru. Like, I'm the what? Um, and that is when we met his followers. It was a great time. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Like you have people who's like you show up it's like oh hey how you doing they just start like you know praying or whatever it's like oh no you don't need to do that yep that became a uh theme after like that became a theme very uh where you know the whenever we would go back to a place we had traveled to especially if we had been there more than once people would start approaching zuru just kind of on the street or as we were going about our business blessings like it, there, this became a whole side thing that our DM would have us interact with, and it was a lot of fun. They actually, um, his followers ended up playing a role in reversing the apocalypse. It was great. That's amazing. Also, I just realized I stole a bit from the opening scenes of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, so I apologize um, for that, but also it felt appropriate. Absolutely. Never apologize. Credit and move forward. Um, great advice, though. Um, and that said, I do want to point out that the moment where I said we were at the halfway mark is officially only a quarter of the way through the episode, so I think now's a good time for us to wrap um, for the evening before we get to the two-and-a-half-hour mark. So um, so with that, thank you so much, Gigi, for joining us tonight. Um, it's been an awesome conversation, and I do imagine we'll probably have you on again because I feel like I still have a hundred questions to ask. And Please uh, do. This was a ton of fun. I we didn't even do any of my questions. <laughs> oh, Next Marvin, time it's just Marvin's show. I was like, Marvin, do you want to ask one question just to make sure that you get no. one? No. <laughs> you no, get no. We'll save them all for next time we have Gigi on. Okay. Well, maybe sooner than later then. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so with that, thank you so much for listening. Um, as always, you can catch new episodes of the show every other Sunday on your favorite podcast player. Um, we are available and active on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can catch us at TIAFA Podcast. You can catch me at Vlad Beaver and Marvin at Tainugetsu. Um, Gigi, do you participate in any public social media that you want to tout? I do not. You might find uh, Lil Vibing Hood around the internet. I'm not active on anything. Feel free to interact with me anyway. It'll be weeks, but I might say hi. I love it. All right. Well, uh, again, thank you so much, Gigi. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And have a good one, everybody. Bye. Thanks for having me.